0: Our catechism instruction comes from question 82 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 82, where we are asked this question, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who show by what they profess and how they live, that they are unbelieving and ungodly? And the answer is no, that would dishonor God's covenant. And bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Now, congregation, remember that uh, last week in the catechism, we had question 81. and Just to refresh your memory... The question then was who should come to the Lord's table? And remember at that time we pointed out that this is a question then for each individual believer in the congregation. Who should come to the Lord's table? And the wonderful answer provided us by, the, by our uh, instructor here. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned for the sake of Christ. So, that is a question then for each individual believer. That is not something I can do for you. Right? That is not something you can do for your wife or something that you can do for your children. Right? This is something that each individual believer must bring himself to the bar, must bring himself, must put himself to the test. But now we come to a very different question because now we move to what is the responsibility of the church in this matter. You see the difference between question 81 and question 82. Question 82. Now we're asking, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? So now it's a question of what is the responsibility of the church in this matter of the Lord's Table? Should the church exclude anyone from the Lord's Supper? Now, what is the question here uh, congregation, because in our, in our church here, as, as a Reformed church here, uh, the question actually then becomes not so much about the Lord's Supper as about who is going to be admitted to the church membership generally. Because the question here would apply not just to the Lord's Supper, but it would apply to all the privileges of the membership in the church, including baptism. Baptism has the same requirements, prerequisites, as it were, as the Lord's Supper, Who is going to be admitted to the privileges of membership? So this is the question then. What is the question? The question is, who should be admitted to the membership of the church? And of course, that is a question then for the leadership of the church, right? In this case, in our case, for the elders, for the consistory of the church to consider who is to be admitted into church membership. And then, of course, they would be admitted to the privilege of partaking of the Lord's Supper, making use of baptism for them and their children, and so on. So that's the question. Now what about the answer? Now here, my friends, we have such a rich literature on this question in the history of the church, especially in this country. If you study the history of the New England Puritan churches, you will find that they exhaustively, discussed this question. What do churches have a right to require from those who are going to join their church? There's so many shades of opinion. It's extremely interesting literature to study. You'll know that the great Puritan theologian, Jonathan Edwards, was dismissed from his church in Northampton. Hey, you think of that Jonathan Edwards? Like, what problem did they have with him? You know, we'll take him, right? But... They wouldn't accept him because he would not allow anybody to become a member of the church that didn't make a profession of real, true, saving faith in Christ. There was a movement at the time to allow people to make become members of the church for simply making a profession of the Christian religion. In other words, simply making a confession that, yes, I believe Christianity to be true and I want to raise my children in the truths of the Christian faith, But I cannot yet say for myself that I am a true believer and that my sins are forgiven and that I have experienced true conversion. Well, the church is kind of watered down then what is required of a member of the church and they allowed such people to join the church and to receive all the privileges of church membership. Now, Jonathan Edwards' predecessor in Northampton was a man by the name of Solomon Stoddard who went so far as even to allow such people to attend or to participate in the Lord's table. So that even people who wanted to come and to partake of the Lord's Supper did not have to make a profession of real, true, saving faith in Christ. As long as they were sincere Christians, and understand what I mean by that now, right? Sincere Christians, in other words, they were more or less adherents to the Christian faith, but not necessarily believing that they themselves were truly converted. They were even allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so this question was tossed back and forth in those days. And, and pamphlets and books uh, flying back and forth. And, you know, even there at congregation, we see the mercy of God. Because in that process, which wasn't very nice all the time, it certainly was no picnic for Jonathan Edwards when he got dismissed from his church. And, and, and then actually, would you believe, he, he became uh, something of a kind of pastor missionary to Indians. Again, it's a fascinating story to read. But, but through this rather painful process, again, you know, books getting written back and forth and people screaming at each other And in, in one sense, right? The truth emerged, right? There's a great deal of thinking that was done on this issue. And we you might say, the, the recipients of, of so much blessing. So you see these terms that I've given you on the outline there. A negative charity So we said that the question now is, what do we require from people who desire to join our church? Well, the obvious easy answer is, well, you have to be a believer. You have to be a Christian to join our church. But to what extent, then, can the church, like what what kind of Christian, like at what level do you have to be? How, How high can we raise that bar? What do we require from people who join our church. Well, this term came out of this controversy in the New England churches, and I think it's a good one. I think it's a one that we can learn tonight. A negative charity. Now, why is it called charity? Well, in the first place, the word, the, uh, it's called a charity there because it's a charitable decision that the elders of the church make. Because no matter what position you take on this question, Almost all people will confess that the elders of the church have no ability to look into the soul of a person and know whether they are really and truly regenerate. There's pretty well agreement on that issue. Now, a negative charity, again, don't think negative in the sense of, um, uh, you know, like something uh, mean or, or negative that way, right? But it's a negative in the sense that you're looking for something that's not there, There is not something present. So you can see that in the catechism question that's given us, there are these things. Two things, actually, that we see that cannot be present. They cannot profess something that is unbelieving. Again, if you look, again, most of the sermon tonight is going to be on that question, not so much the answer, the question. They cannot profess something that is unbelieving. They're in the first place. But you, you hear the negative, right? We're, we're saying this, this cannot be present. Let me explain a, a positive charity a minute. So a positive charity, again, don't think of positive as something like happy, right? Now think of something that you have to prove that it is present, right? So the question that the elders have for people who want to join the church is not prove to us that you are a Christian, You see the difference? Prove to us that you are a Christian. No, the elders have a negative charity. In other words, is there anything present in your life that would prove to us that you are not a Christian? And the catechism, very wisely, says profess something that is unbelieving. Again, is there some doctrinal error that you profess that we need to clear up before you can become a member of the church? Or is there something obviously ungodly in your life, your lifestyle, that is clearly, visibly, publicly ungodly that would bar you from becoming a member of this church. Now, just to beat up a little bit on some of the Reformed churches that we, uh, we like in, in our experience here. And again, I, use, I, I say that facetiously, right? Of course, we, we recognize these as brothers and sisters in the Lord. But for instance, in the Netherlands Reformed Church, you would find very much a positive charity expectation of becoming a member of that church. And actually, uh, it wouldn't even be to be a member of that church because they would very much distinguish between being a member of the church, which they open up to anyone who is willing to profess Christianity in any way, and and being admitted to the Lord's table, which they will only allow to people who profess to be truly regenerate. And if you went to the Lord's table, then you would be... Uh, asked to meet with the elders. And then again, the question would be very much, prove to me that you are a Christian. And they would want to hear the story of your conversion. They would want to hear how the Lord led you. How were you convicted of your sins? And again, they're looking very much for a testimony, right? Very much for a story. They want to know, how did you come to repentance? How did the Lord reveal Christ to you? And, And again, they want to hear very experientially, All the different steps that took place in your conversion. And then they will, in in a sense, pass judgment on that. Yes, we believe you really truly are a converted person. And so we'll give our blessing to you partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, uh, congregation, our churches vigorously reject that kind of approach to church membership. Uh, That is not a biblical approach. You never find that in the New Testament that the elders, or even Jesus, sat in judgment on someone's testimony. The the letters of the New Testament are always written to Christians. And I, I think probably you find this interesting, as I do, right, that a lot of times Paul will say things about the people present in these churches that don't sound very Christian. And yet Paul always opens the letter, doesn't he, by saying to the church in Corinth or Ephesus or Rome, those called to be saints, those members of the household of God. And he uses that language, doesn't he? Now, in a, in a lesser way, our brothers in the Protestant Reformed churches have a, a set of doctrinal statements which they call a declaration of principles. A declaration of principles which they require you to submit to. Now, I'd say this is, is less of a, a problem than the previous one. And yet here, too, I think as churches, we would raise an objection that you would take your interpretation of the three forms of unity, right, the canons of Dort, especially in this case, and raise that to a level where you can't join the church unless you give your assent to these declaration of principles. It seems to be uh, taking uh, the charitable assumption that we make of a person's profession and requiring a level of specificity that the word of God doesn't require, that the word of God doesn't make, especially when the interpretation made of the three forms of unity there is quite unique, very unique to them. No other Reformed church holds to those principles or insists on it. Now, in the United Reformed Church, I'm proud to say that we have people who do hold to those doctrines and they're welcome in our denomination. But we do not make that a standard or a confessional statement that every office bearer in our denomination has to give their assent to. So there's a difference there, right? We're not saying that that, that, uh, that is an illegitimate interpretation of the confessions, even though many people, most people would disagree with it, right? We allow such in our denomination. But we don't want to raise it to a level of something that you have to uh, confess to before you can become a member of the church, so these are good terms for us, I think, to know. In negative charity, right? We're not asking you to prove to us that you are a Christian, that your salvation is genuine. We are asking you to make clear to us that there are not these things in your life and in your profession which would indicate that you are not a Christian and those two things are professing something that is unbelieving and living in an ungodly way. Those two things. Now, what about the Bible? So much for our practice as a church. Is this scriptural? Is this a biblical way of proceeding? And we're given such a clear teaching on this matter in 1 Corinthians 5, this chapter that we read together. So let's turn there now to 1 Corinthians 5. What is the problem that we have in this particular instance? And you know, congregation, that the church at Corinth was a problem church. Paul had issues with the church at Corinth. And here you see uh, the level of dysfunction or sin that was even uh, in the church at Corinth. In verse 5, we have a man who was living with his father's wife. Let's assume at this point, uh, I think it's a safe assumption that that must be his stepmother. Probably wasn't his mother. Probably his stepmother, is probably his father had remarried and in some horribly obscene way, this man was now living with his father's wife. And you can see that Paul puts his finger on that problem and, and, and it's even shocking to read in verse 2 that the church was quite arrogant, even proud, even boastful. The word is there in the Greek. Uh, again, the, the church apparently was quite proud of their spirituality, quite uh, confident that they were a, a pious church, that they had every reason to believe they were a strong Bible-believing church. And Paul rebukes them for that. He says, you should have mourned. You should have grieved, verse 2, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. So this is the solution, Paul says. And in verse 3, he carries on. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Now, if you remember our series on the book of Acts, Uh, You remember that Corinth was a Greek city. You remember the the Greek peninsula there? And then uh, to the east of that, right, was Turkey, where was the city of Ephesus. And so at this time, Paul is probably in the city of Ephesus. You might say just a hop across the Aegean Sea there, right? And he's probably, he probably wants to be in Corinth so bad. I mean, you can hear it, right? He says, I'm absent in body, but present in spirit, He could get to Corinth, and there's even evidence that at one point he did go visit Corinth. But he's not there, and he wants to be there. Why? Because he wants the church to take a stand on this issue. That's the solution. This man must be dismissed from your assembly. And that's what we have, those severe words in verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, delivering someone to Satan was a word for excommunication. What we call excommunication. The official dismissal from the body of believers in Corinth. Being delivered over to Satan. And the purpose in verse 5 is for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, this man would come under so much hardship and so much trouble that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul has always an eye that this man might be saved, but he's he he understands well enough that this man first has to be delivered over to Satan. What does that mean? In the church, you have the arena, as it were, of the Holy Spirit. In the church is where the Spirit works with his blessed ministry, his saving ministry of bringing people to Jesus, uniting them to Christ. Outside the church is the realm of Satan. This is the kingdom of darkness. And when Paul says, I'm going to deliver him over to Satan, again, Paul's not there, but he's he's there in spirit. He says, I'm going to make a decision, and we're going to take that man, and we're going to dismiss him from our assembly. We're going to deliver him over to Satan with the hope that he'll come under so much hardship there that he'll realize his sin, and he'll come back in true repentance and be admitted back, and his soul will be saved, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, on that glorious judgment day, His soul, his spirit, will be saved. So there's the solution. And then Paul has an illustration. He has an illustration of this. Perhaps it was Passover time at that time. Who knows? It seems like it it may very well have been. But Paul refers to Passover in verse 7. Clean out the old leaven, he says, that you may be a new lump. That is a new lump of dough. Now you know that during the feast of the Passover, the Israelites were not allowed to have any leaven, any yeast, in their houses not even in their houses it could not be anywhere the passover was only to be eaten with unleavened bread because that yeast was a symbol of impurity and a symbol of sin no yeast in your houses and no yeast at your passover celebration and now paul you might say takes that picture which was so familiar to the jewish people at the time and he says get rid of the old leaven in other words take that man who's causing the scandal the sin And get rid of that leaven, get rid of that sin, before it spreads throughout the whole community, the whole assembly. And again, you can think about the the children, the younger people, who maybe weren't uh, as as well-versed in the matters of Christianity, the new visitors, the new converts. And they see this man, he's living with his father's wife. And they think, well, nobody seems to be doing anything about it here. Nobody seems too concerned about it. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe the seventh commandment isn't quite so strict as we at once thought, right? And again, you can see all that poison is beginning to spread because of the inaction of the leadership of this church. And Paul is just burning with desire to be in their assembly so he can stand up, make a decision, take that leaven, get it, get it out before it poisons the whole dough, the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. And verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the feast. Now here, this is almost certainly the Lord's Supper. They uh, They weren't supposed to be celebrating Passover anymore, right? Since Christ had come. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, okay, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, of sincerity and truth. Now, in the next verse, Paul has to make a clarification. That's the next thing in my outline there the clarification. Paul says very quickly, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, my friends, Paul had written a previous letter to the Corinthians, a letter probably which we don't have anymore. Uh, God did not see fit in his providence to preserve that letter in the canon of Scripture. But in that letter, Paul must have said something like, do not associate with sinful, immoral people. And the Corinthian people had misunderstood that. Okay, in verse 11, Paul corrects their misunderstanding. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Now that brother is a technical term for somebody who is a Christian. Somebody who is a member of your assembly, your congregation, your church. So Paul's not saying don't associate with any immoral people, right? He says in verse uh, at the end of verse 11, if you did that, you'd, have to, you'd never leave your house in the morning, right? I mean, there, we, we associate with immoral people all the time. But Paul says, the kind of separation that I'm calling you to do is between those immoral people who are brothers and sisters in the church. In other words, members of your church. This is the problem. This is the problem. For those kind of people who profess to be Christians and yet commit these kinds of sins, They are not to be associated with. So don't misunderstand my previous letter, says Paul. Well, my friends, that brings me then to these points of application, which I think you can see fits perfectly with the catechism instruction that was given us this evening. So the first question then, who should the church judge? Who should the church judge based on our scripture this evening? I think we can answer that question very, very confidently. That the church members, are, or the elder, the leadership of the church is called to judge those who profess to be Christians. Those who are members of the church. Again, if you look at verse 12 and 13, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, those who are not members of the church. Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among them yourselves. So, who are the church to judge? Those who are within the church. And by the way, congregation, just a clarification too, the word judge here, I know it has a very negative connotation in our society today, but understand the word judge here as assess. Right? It's not a negative thing. Sometimes we use the word judge as a synonym with condemn. Right? But that's not how Paul's using it here. Paul's using it here as to assess something, to, 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 to know the truth of something. So who should the church judge? Paul clearly teaches that the church should judge Christians. How should the church judge others? Well, in the second place, the church should judge with a negative charity. Right? And that's the teaching that is really assumed here. God or Paul does not call the elders of the Corinthian church to judge whether those who are applying for membership in the Christian or in the Corinthian church to judge whether they are really and truly converted. He does not ask them to sit in judgment on their profession of faith. What he asks them to do is to cast out the sinner. Get rid of the leaven. Again, the the sin here is understood to be a public sin. Again, you you wouldn't throw somebody out of the church for for telling a lie. Again, assuming it was a a private, one-time thing or something like that. That's of a more private nature. But sins that are of a public, visible nature. Paul says, those people are to be dismissed from the church and excluded from the privileges of church membership. A negative charity. Now it's interesting, when we look at the examples that Paul gives in, his, in the rest of his letters, or uh, in all of Scripture, we can see different examples of what kind of sins those are that count as sins that can bar a person from membership in the church. So I put these four verses here. Uh, we don't need to read every, every word of them, but in Matthew 18, You have here people who refuse to resolve conflict. The refusal to resolve conflict. And again, this is the very well-known Matthew 18 principle of going to somebody privately, taking with you two or three witnesses on the second try. But then Paul says, if he refuses to listen to them, that is to the person who brings the witnesses with him, tell it to the church. And then those very solemn words, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Well, that's very clearly talking about the decision that the church leadership make in uh, in taking a person and dismissing them and excommunicating them from the body of believers. But again, notice that the nature of this sin is something public and visible Right? Even on the principles of a negative charity, if there was a conflict between two people, especially if that conflict is between two people that are within the church, they're not allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we mentioned that last week. But neither are they even allowed to come into the membership of the church until that has been resolved. In Titus 3, we have here In the last verse, there, reject a factious or divisive man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted or twisted and is sinning, being self condemned. You find actually a lot of very negative statements in the New Testament against those who cause controversies in the Christian church. Here is a man who is factious or a woman who is divisive. And notice, don't throw him out immediately. A first and second warning. And again, I think that even there, it's not meant literally one and then two and then out, right? But in other words, there is this conversation that takes place. And but where there is a persistent refusal to stop causing division in the body of Christ, then reject him, says Paul. Reject him. In other words, he is to be dismissed from the assembly. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, We have here the case of a person. In the first verse there it says, Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother, of course, it's also implied, or sister, who leads an unruly life. Now, unruly there might seem kind of a broad category. But here in this context, it's clearly referring to someone who is idle. Who is not providing. And and again, not providing, that doesn't mean, you know, what standard of living do you want, right? Right? It means that this person is not working. They're lazy. They are not providing for their own, not because they're poor and working as hard as they can, right? but because they're lazy. And here Paul says again, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. And then notice that last sentence, my friends. I really want you to read this last sentence with me. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Again, none of this is some kind of holier than thou. Well, you don't take care of your family? You're out. We don't want to have anything to do with you. No, it's a broken heart, a broken heart of love for a brother who's in sin, who we dismiss for our assembly, and who we baptize in prayer that God would bring him or her to repentance in order that his soul might be saved. You see the spirit in which this is done. It is not a happy day for a church when a a, a member of the church comes under discipline. That's a sad day for a church, a day for broken heart, and a day for prayer. The last example given us here is in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul mentions Hymenaeus in the last sentence there, Hymenaeus and Alexander." Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. So that same expression there, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now here we're not told what their sin was. So it's hard to know why they were excommunicated from the church. In the context of 1 Timothy 1, again, if you read around in, in 1 Timothy 1, it seems likely that these Hymenaeus and Alexander may have denied the resurrection of believers on the last day. And you'll notice that in our catechism, right, it says that those are not to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess that they are unbelieving. They profess something unbelieving. And so it seems likely that in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, they denied the truth of the resurrection, which Paul says is blaspheming. And so they were handed over to Satan. But again, there it is again. So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Not to cut them off and to send them to hell. No, but that they might be won over. That they might be brought to repentance. That they might be received back into our fellowship. So, my friends, how should the church judge others? The church is judging public, visible sins as well as uh, public and visible errors that are professed with the mouth. And the application, third third application, how should individuals judge themselves? Well, my friends, I'm not going to say much about this because that takes you back to last week. But I just want to, again, bring out that distinction. We're talking tonight about what the church judged judges the church judges with a negative charity but that's not how we are to judge ourselves my friends when you are judging yourself you need to look into your soul you need to say search me O god and you need to look within your soul and to ask yourself those questions that we talked about last week am i displeased with myself because of my sin am i I trusting that my sins are forgiven me only for the sake of christ Again, I I want to, I really want that to be clear. No elder stands in judgment like that on you. In fact, the sad thing that's the truth, congregation, is that sometimes the elders can even hear somebody making a profession and they may even have doubts themselves about whether this person is truly converted. But again, because we are called to judge with a negative charity, we may approve that person to join the membership of the church. But, my friends, for you personally today, being approved into the membership of the church does not mean that you now have a a straight-to-heaven pass, right? A get-out-of-jail-free card that's going to admit you straight into heaven. God calls upon you to look within your soul. Is there faith in your heart? Is there an earnest desire to please God by my lifestyle? Is there true repentance when there is sin? Again, I'm not going to go back over what we talked about last week. But again, it's critical that we understand that the elders don't hand you, right, a ticket to heaven. They're simply saying that in our judgment, there's nothing here which disqualifies you from becoming a member of this church. In congregation application four, how will God judge well, God can judge even more than we can judge ourselves because He sees into your heart. He has an all seeing eye. You can fool the elders, but you will never fool God. Now, congregation, for all that, I don't want to end this sermon on that point. I have such a happy ending for this sermon. And if you would take your Bible with me and turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. The happiest ending to this sermon that you possibly can imagine. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. Let's start with verse 4. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 4. Paul writes, For out of much affliction, again, chapter 2, verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you but if any has caused sorrow and the any here my friends is that man who was living in that incestuous relationship but if any has caused sorrow he has caused sorrow not to me but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority what what happened then in Corinth this man was judged The the community acted. The church came together and this man was excommunicated. But continue reading with me, verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, my friends, this calls for a collective hallelujah in the congregation because this man was placed under discipline. Again, this assumes that This is the man we're talking about. Most commentators say that it's almost certain that this is who Paul is talking about here. This man was placed under discipline. He was handed over to Satan. And he was forgiven. And now Paul says, Comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Clearly this man came to repentance. And now Paul says, Open wide the arms of the church's love and take him back in, and comfort him. Don't let him become excessively sorrowful over the sin that he committed. Isn't that a beautiful thing, my friends? That there came a day in the Corinthian church when that man who was living with his father's wife took his place in the church pew, and he heard from the pulpit, Grace to you. Again, I don't know what salutation or greeting the apostle used, but he certainly said this a lot. Grace to you and peace. Congregation, doesn't your heart melt with joy at what the Holy Spirit does in the life of people? How that this man who committed such an unthinkable sin came to the grace of God found forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and the church welcomed him back you know the apostle paul often sounds so severe he sounds so uncompromising but don't you see the broken heart of the apostle here as he says don't overwhelm this man with sorrow don't hold it against him don't even bring it up again god has taken the sin of this man and congregation god has taken our sin if you're a believer this evening and he's cast it into the sea of forgetfulness and he remembers it no more. As far as east from west is distant, so far has he removed our sin from us. This man is rejoicing in glory today. And someday, my friends, we'll all get to meet him when we enter into the gates of heaven and see the man who made it into First Corinthians as such a vile sinner and who made it into 2 Corinthians as a redeemed sinner. Let's close with that. Let's pray. Oh God, we are astonished again at the grace and the mercy you show to sinners. Lord, none of us here have committed the sin that this man committed. And yet this man sings and shouts for joy in the new Jerusalem today. He sings, worthy is the lamb that was slain, that shed his blood to take away my sin. And Lord, we rejoice in that same Lamb of God. We rejoice in that Christ who is our Passover Lamb. And Lord, as we have meditated this evening on the responsibility of the church's leadership, I pray, Lord, that we would come beyond that even this evening and think about ourselves as individuals and our own hearts and our own sin which we have committed. And so, Lord, as a congregation, we come. We come under the blood, under that blood of sprinkling of that Passover lamb. We take that blood, Lord, and smear it on our doors and know that we have hope in no one else, nothing else, but in the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Lord, this is our only plea, our only argument to make when we consider ourselves this evening. But Lord, we do pray for the elders of this church and the difficult task they have of guiding this church, and especially in the matter of admitting people to membership, admitting people to the privileges of membership as baptism and the Lord's Supper. Lord, will you give them a a great deal of wisdom and discernment, that they may lead well, and that this congregation might be pure of all leaven, all yeast that would defile us. Lord, I pray also for Dylan and Andrew, as they have come into the Confession of Faith class, and as we now consider these things together. Lord, I pray that these young men would be filled with a firm, unshakable resolve to give their hearts and lives to serve you, and not just as Christians, but also as members of this church, to receive from us grace, but also, Lord, that the grace of God would flow into them and out of them to us, so that we might be mutually beneficial to each other in the years to come. Bless these brothers, Lord, and give them all that they need as they pursue their studies with myself. Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Amen. We come then to number 47 in the blue hymnal. uh, Number 47. Number 47 where we uh, sing these words. Be thou my judge, O righteous Lord. Try thou mine inmost heart. I walk with steadfast trust in thee, nor from thy ways depart. So we'll sing the seven verses of number 47 in the blue hymnal. The blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.